Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another study of biblical history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time we looked at a couple of questions related to Romans chapter 6. That discussion sparked some further emails from some of our listeners. So I decided to share some of those email exchanges here at the beginning of the program before taking a closer look at the rest of the text of Romans. Before we look at those questions, however, let's ask God's blessing on our study. Our Heavenly Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, we praise your holy name for sending your Son to cover our sinful status in Adam, as well as atone for all of our own sins. Help us in this study of Romans to clearly understand what Apostle Paul taught about sin and salvation to the Jewish and Gentile saints in the first century. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a question that I want to deal with here uh, in regard to the sin that's mentioned in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. The question goes like this. I appreciate your dealing with Romans 6, 1 on last Sunday's podcast, though I think your logic was correct as you demonstrated the fallacies in Sam Frost's old view I was wondering if you have any thoughts as to the reason why Apostle Paul used the definite article, the, before sin, death, and grace. In other words, if Paul wasn't referring to the sin, that is to say, Adam's original transgression, why does Paul use the definite article, the, here in reference to sin? That appears to be pointing back to a specific sin, the sin of Adam, rather than to a generic sinning in general. Well, that's an excellent question. And here's what I wrote in reply to that. The definite article, the, does not function in the Greek in exactly the same way it functions in English. There is quite a bit of similarity, but also some significant differences. Sam Frost pretended like he was an expert on Koine Greek, but every time I shared his grammatical arguments with my Greek professor and several other Greek scholars at ETS, they raised their eyebrows like Spock on Star Trek. When I examined Frost's arguments in the Greek grammars, I understood why they did not think very much of his Greek expertise. Some of the positions that Frost was taking were typical of beginning Greek students who did not know how to do advanced Greek exegesis. This argument on the definite article is a case in point. Even in beginning Greek classes, we were told that the presence or absence of the definite article was not always significant. It was simply the way some writers or speakers communicated in Koine Greek. It is just like the differences between Midwesterners and New Englanders here in the USA. Texans like me are famous for bending the rules of English grammar. 
Now, notice this last sentence I just said. Texans are famous for bending the rules of English grammar. I could have included the definite article on Texans so that it would read, the Texans like me, but I simply said Texans like me. But I could have included the definite article the on Texans and left the definite article off rules of English grammar, and it would still have meant the same thing. The presence or absence of the definite article in those two places would not significantly affect the meaning, and it sure would not justify the assignment of a whole different definition to Texans or English grammar just because they do or do not have the definite article in front of them. But if Frost theory is allowed, in other words, sin equals the law in Romans chapter 6, then we could substitute Floridians in place of Texans and Spanish grammar in place of English grammar. But even a caveman can see the fallacy of doing that. There's no justification at all for changing definitions of words just because a definite article is there present. Sometimes the Quine Greek speakers and writers use the definite article, and sometimes they didn't, just like in English. Quite often it was a matter of local or regional custom. Greek speakers in Turkey phrased their writings differently than Greek speakers in Alexandria or Athens, just like English speakers in the USA phrase things differently than they do in England, Australia, India, or South Africa. But it's usually clear in the context what the Greek speakers meant to say, and the surrounding sentence and clause structure contains the grammatical clues to determine the meaning regardless of whether the definite article is there or not. In advanced Greek courses, they go way beyond word definitions and articular and arthrous considerations or tense mood, voice, case, person, endings of the words to look at the overall function of the phrase, clause, sentence, or paragraph that the word is used in. The presence or absence of the definite article is seldom a major factor in determining the meaning of the sentence. The function of the word or phrase or clause in its context determines the meaning, regardless of the presence or absence of the definite article. For instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses use John chapter 1 verse 1 as their proof that the presence or absence of the definite article is critical to the meaning of the word God. In Greek, John 1 verse 1 literally reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and God was the Word. The JWs assert that since the second use of the word God here in verse 1 does not have the definite article, that it's only talking about a lesser God, like the angels, and not talking about the one true God. That sounds like an impressive argument until we look right here in the context of the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 to notice other uses of the word God without the definite article attached to it. For instance, in John chapter 1 verse 6, 
verse 13 and verse 18. Those three other references to God without the definite article are clearly referring to Yahweh, yet they do not have the definite article. Are we to conclude in verse 6, therefore, that John the Baptist was sent by a lesser God or angel and not by the one true God, Yahweh? Of course not. This argument by the JWs is totally bogus, or as Chilton used to say, illegitimate, negatory, and gossamer. Right there in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, there are three exceptions to the JW's rule. Native Greek speakers and Orthodox Greek scholars laugh at the fallacy of the JW argument. It is something that only a first-year Greek student might suggest, but no real Greek scholars would take it seriously. And it is the same error that Sam Frost was making when he suggested that the presence of the definite article, the, in front of the word sin, here in Romans chapter 6, must be referring to the specific sin of Adam and not simply to generic sin or sinning by individual Christians. We will see right here in the context of Romans that there is no support for Frost's claim that every time the definite article is used with the word sin here in Romans, it is referring to the specific sin of Adam and never to generic sin or sinning. One way to refute this claim of Frost is to show how Paul uses the word sin, which is the Greek word hamartia, in the book of Romans. The Greek word hamartia occurs 48 or more times in 39 verses in the Greek text of Romans. Here is the list of those 39 verses, and they're in the outline. So, uh, And if you don't have the outline, just email me and I'll send it to you. But there's a list of 39 verses that have these 48 or more occurrences of the Greek word hamartia, which means sin, in the book of Romans. And we're going to look at all 39 of those verses here in this session. And I have a chart where I've highlighted all these and noted them for us in red letters so that we can find them easily and look at them in their context. And I want to explain the key to this chart that we have here in the lesson outline. There's some red-lettered text, there's some blue-lettered text, and there's some yellow-highlighted text. Now, in this session, we don't need to pay any attention to the blue-lettered text. You can just kind of ignore that if you want to, because we're not going to deal with it. We will deal with it in future sessions, however. But for now, we can just ignore it. But I do want to look at the red-lettered text and the yellow-highlighted text. And, of course, the red-lettered text is every time the Greek word hamartia, or sin, is used in one of these 39 verses, it's marked by red-lettered text so that we can find that word sin real easily in these verses. If the definite article, the, is used with that Greek word hamartia, I have included the word the in brackets, to indicate the presence of the definite article in connection with that particular occurrence of the word sin in the Greek. In reference to the yellow highlighted text, that is an indication of the places which use the word sin in a way that clearly indicates the kind of sin Paul has in mind here. 
Those yellow highlighted verses in the left-hand column of our chart are the ones to which we need to pay very close attention because they will help us see that Paul is not only using the definite article in reference to the specific sin of Adam, but also in reference to generic sin or sinning by individual Christians. In the right-hand column below, I will make a lot of notes and say a lot more about those yellow highlighted text and the red-lettered text that we find in our chart. So let's look at the chart now. If you want to flip over to page 4 of our lesson outline, you'll notice that there's two columns to it. On the left column is the uh, Romans text, and then on the right side is my comments about those texts. Now let's look first at Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And if you don't have the lesson outline in front of you, just open your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Okay, uh, in Romans 3, 9, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, it doesn't specify what sin he's talking about there, but notice it does not use the definite article with it. It's just referred to as sin. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Not the sin, but just under sin. Now, that's significant because in some of the other references here that we're going to look at in Romans, it refers to the sin that all human beings were under as being the sin, and specifically the sin of Adam, because Adam led us all into sin. And so we need to see here that uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, that sin is referred to without the definite article. Very important. That shows, first of all, right out of the chute here, that Frost rule in regard to the definite article is questionable at best, just based on the first verse we looked at out of the 39 verses that use the word sin. Note especially this first reference to sin here in Romans 3.9. It does not have the definite article prefixed to it. It is simply sin and not the sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under the condemnation of this kind of sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not the sin, just sin. Paul points out here in verse 20 that there is a relationship between the law and sin. That relationship is explained here as being through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law defines what sin is. That is one of the functions of the law, to define what sin is and to show how sinful sin really is. Later on down the road, we'll notice that that same function or relationship between the law and sin is referred to in the sense of the sin uh, with the definite article attached to the word sin. So, very important that here in chapter 3, we're already seeing some exceptions to Sam Frost's rule regarding the definite article usage. Very interesting. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins 
Not the sins, but just sins have been covered. And then in verse 8, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin, not the sin, but just sin, the Lord will not take into account. These two verses, Romans 4, verse 7 and 8, quote from Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, where David pronounced blessings on the person whose sins God does not take into account. Note the lack of a definite article here in both of these verses. Then in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man the sin entered into the world, and death through the sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, very interesting here. In these two verses, we have the definite article used with sin twice and sin used without the definite article twice. Very interesting. Yet they seem to both be referring to the same kind of sin that was in the world before the law came into play which means that they're both talking about the sin of Adam. Here in this verse, 12, which Frost used to support his claim that the sin is referring to Adam's specific sin, it says here that Adam's sin is definitely under consideration. It's very clear in verse 12. However, it is not the specific sin that is referred to here by the words, the sin. Instead, Paul is simply telling us how generic sin or sinning or sinfulness entered into the world. Of course, it was through Adam, but he's just referring to sin generically here, uh, not specifically the sin, the one sin of Adam. Paul is simply telling us how generic sin or sinning or sinfulness entered into the world. Notice the absence of the definite article in the next verse, which refers to the presence of sin in the world because all sinned before the law came to point out that sin and show how utterly sinful mankind really was. And so here in these two verses, I think it's using sin with the definite article and without the definite article, but it's talking about the same kind of sin in both verses. And therefore, it does not give us a consistent usage of the definite article, which is what Sam Frost would need in order to back up his theory that every time the definite article is used, it's referring to the sin of Adam. That's not the case here in verse 13 especially. Okay, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, it reads this way, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as the sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the functions of the law was to define what sin is to point out how sinful mankind really is, and to bring him under condemnation. Note that the sin here in verse 20 is the sinfulness that the law was pointing out and does not refer to 
the sin of Adam. But if Frost's theory is correct, we would have to say that the sin that was increased by law was the specific sin of Adam and not the kind of generic sinfulness that the law was designed to point out and condemn. So here in verse 20, we see a clear exception to Frost theory. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin, so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to the sin still live in it. Now, Sam Frost and other collective body advocates claim that the reference to the sin here in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2 is a reference to the sin of Adam and therefore is connected with the law. And they use the word law to replace the word sin in the meaning that they assign to uh, these two verses. To be consistent, however, we would have to believe that these references to the sin here in verses 1 and 2 are at least referring back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, if not all the way back to chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, where the sin was first used. But as we noticed above in those verses, the sin was not exclusively referring to the specific sin of Adam, but to the sinfulness of all mankind because all sinned. Chapter 5, verse 12. And in 5.20, we noted again that the sinfulness that the law defined was not exclusively the sin of Adam alone, but the sinfulness of all men. Therefore, continuing in the sin here in 6.1, does not necessarily refer to the specific sin of Adam, but instead seems to refer to our own continuation in a sinful lifestyle after supposedly dying to that sinful lifestyle by repentance. Notice Paul's reference to we here in chapter 6, verse 1. He was referring to saints in his day who had received grace, He was arguing against their continuation in the sinful lifestyle after their conversion to Christ, not urging them to forsake the sin of Adam by leaving the collective body of Adam and coming over into the collective body of Christ. Now, you may think that's strange for me to say it that way, but that's exactly what our collective body fellow preterists are saying that this text means. And it doesn't work, as we can see here already, and as we will see here shortly as we get further into the text here of Romans chapter 6. Paul was arguing against their continuation in the sinful lifestyle after their conversion to Christ. He's not urging them to forsake the sin of Adam by leaving the collective body of Adam and coming over into the collective body of Christ. Now, even though that may be a valid idea, which maybe some text in our Bible might teach, it is not the idea that this particular verse in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, is teaching. They have to import that idea into the text. It's not there. Paul is not talking about a collective body here in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. 
So although that may be a valid biblical concept, it is not the concept that Paul is using here in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. We know this because in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul refers to the we as having died to the sin. What sin had they died to when they became followers of Christ? Was it their own sinful lifestyle or the sin of Adam? The following verses in chapters 6 and 7, I think, will clear this up for us. In Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, as well as in verses 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, we notice the usages of the sin several times. And then in verse 14, it refers to that sin as simply sin without the definite article. Now, that's very interesting. Here in verse 14, Paul uses sin without the definite article, but is clearly referring to the same the sin as the previous verses in verse 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, and 13. The reason we know this is because he is talking about sin not being master over us. That is the same idea that Paul mentioned back in verses 6 when he said slaves to the sin, verse 7 where he says freed from the sin, and verse 12 where he says do not let the sin reign. It's the same sin in all four of these verses, regardless of whether it has the definite article or not. Very, very important point. And we need to notice that because it's not referring to that sin as the sin in every instance. Sometimes it does and sometimes it does not use the definite article. But it's referring to the same sin nevertheless because it's the same sin that was master over them before they were Christians, which they are now dead to, and that sin is no longer master over them, as it says here in these verses, verses 6 through 14. Okay, now let's look at verses 16 through 23, and I'll read these for us. Uh, Romans 6, verse 16 says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Verse 17 now says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of the sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from the sin, you became slaves of righteousness. For when you were slaves of the sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now having been freed from the sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. And then in verse 23 he says, For the wages of the sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here in verse 16, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 and following, here in verse 16 is another reference to the same the sin without the definite article. 
followed immediately in the next seven verses, verses 17 through 23, by five more references to the sin with the definite article. The claim by Frost that Paul uses the sin consistently throughout this context as a reference to the sin of Adam simply does not hold up under scrutiny. These verses just don't prove his point at all. In fact, they dispute his point and refute his point. Now let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know the sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now notice there's two uses of the word sin here in Romans 7 verse 7. One has the definite article and the other one does not. But they're both talking about the same sin, even though they both do not have the definite article. Paul asked the rhetorical question whether the law is sin. And that word sin there is without the definite article, but then refers to that same sin as the sin with the definite article right here in the same verse. Do you catch the power of that? In the same verse, it refers to the same sin twice, one with the definite article and one without it. That doesn't help Sam Frost's case In the next verse, Romans 7, verse 8, it says, But the sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul does the same thing here in verse 8 that he did in verse 7. He refers to the sin with the definite article in the first part of the verse, but then ends the verse with another reference to sin without the definite article. Yet both references to sin are talking about the same sin. How does Frost theory fare here in this verse? Not very well. Well, let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 9 and 11. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, the sin became alive, and I died. And in verse 11, he says, For the sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Here are two more references to the sin with the definite article, right after Paul had referred to it as sin without the definite article. Very interesting. Hmm. Then in verse 13, Paul says, Therefore did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was the sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, the sin would become utterly sinful. Now, the word hamartia is used four times in this verse here. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. And notice it uses the definite article on two of them and no definite article on the other two. So here's another verse that has both uses 
with and without the definite article contained within it. This does not fit Frost theory at all. Then we go down to Romans chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to the sin. Here is another occurrence of the sin with the definite article, only to be followed a few verses later with two more references to the same sin without the definite article, verse 17 and verse 20. Either Paul does not understand proper Greek grammar and is grossly inconsistent here, or Sam Frost has frivolously constructed a grammar rule that did not exist in the first century. I feel very safe in imputing the error to Sam Frost and not to Apostle Paul. Paul is not inconsistent. This is simply the way they used the definite article in Koine Greek of the first century. Well, in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, Paul says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Then in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the sin and of death. Now, in these three verses that we've just looked at, Romans chapter 7, verse 23 verse 25, and chapter 8, verse 2. Notice the two phrases, law of sin and law of the sin, in chapter 8, verse 2. Both phrases are referring to the same law of sin, but only one of the three verses has the definite article used in reference to this law of the sin. It appears once again that Sam Frost's grammar rule strikes out again. Now in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh. This verse exhibits another clear example of the equivalence of these two uses of sin in the same verse, one with the article and the other without the article. We have to wonder how Frost could miss this. Was he reading the same Greek text that we are reading? In chapter 8, verse 10, Paul says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. When this verse, dead because of sin, without the article, is compared with 
chapter 6, verse 16, which reads sin resulting in death. Chapter 6, verse 23, which reads wages of the sin is death. And chapter 7, verse 9 and 11, where it says the sin became alive and I died and the sin killed me. As well as chapter 7, verse 13, which says sin effected my death. Notice the flip-flop back and forth between the presence and absence of the definite article in all of these verses. All these verses mention the same sin that was causing their death, regardless of whether they have the definite article or not. Do you catch the power of that? Then in Romans chapter 11, verse 27, it says, This is my covenant with them when I take away the sins of them. The usage of sins here is plural, referring to the salvation of all Israel when their sins, with the definite article, were taken away. This is obviously not referring to the sin of Adam, which was already taken away by Christ on the cross. Yet it has the definite article there, and it refers to it in the plural as the sins. Very interesting. Then in chapter 14, verse 23, there's another reference to sin without the definite article, but I think this is so far outside of our context that it probably does not really directly relate to the issue of Adam's sin. I don't think it's really significant for our study here since it's three chapters or more removed from the context where Paul was dealing with the sin. This occurrence of sin without the definite article is referring to the practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols without a proper understanding of it. It was defiling their conscience and causing the weaker brother to stumble and was therefore sinful because it was not done in faith and in good conscience. Well, I think that concludes the uh, look at all 39 of those verses that use the word sin, either with the definite article or without it, uh, in the book of Romans. We've seen that Frost's theory about the sin referring exclusively to the sin of Adam simply does not hold up under an examination of the context here in Romans. So there are simply too many exceptions to the rule to even have a rule. And if the sin, with the definite article, does not refer to the specific sin of Adam, our federal head, then the sin is not necessarily referring to the sinful condemned status of a collective body, all those who are in Adam or Moses. It could just as easily be summing up all men, Jews and Gentiles, under condemnation for their sin. Frost's idea that the sin here is a reference to the sin of Adam and the law simply does not have contextual verification. It is a very flawed theory with no consistent contextual support for it. The concept of a collective body, I believe, is what drove Sam Frost, to suggest this theory in the first place. His reasoning must have been based on some assumptions like the following. 
Number one, Paul teaches the idea of a collective body in some of his letters. Number two, Paul must be teaching it here in Romans as well. Number three, that means that this whole discussion about the sin must be related to the collective body somehow. And then fourth, so we will need to redefine the sin so that it harmonizes with the collective body concept. That seems to be the way Sam Frost must have been reasoning about this. He was reading into the text what he assumed was there, what his paradigm needed to be there. And so he harmonizes the text with what he believes needs to be there. He's assuming what he needs to prove. He's assuming that the collective body is here and then twisting the text to make it fit his assumptions rather than looking at the context to see if the collective body is really there. I don't know that I have pinpointed exactly his thought process, but that's the way it seems to me is that he was assuming that the collective body was there, and so he invented this idea about the definite article on sin so that it would harmonize with his collective body, which he assumed was being discussed there in Romans chapter 6. Well, that's enough about that. I think we've proven that his theory is not consistent here in Romans. Uh, It doesn't use a definite article about the sin of Adam consistently. It flip-flops back and forth. Next week, we're going to deal with the subject of baptism a little bit, since it's mentioned here in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. And it's amazing to me how many preterists have thrown baptism out with the bathwater. I'm going to read a few statements by some of the best commentaries on this subject about baptism. Both Reformed and other evangelical commentaries, all of them are conservative, and show that baptism, and show that the baptism which Paul mentions here is indeed water baptism as practiced by John the Baptist, Jesus, the Apostles, and the pre-70 church. That'll be a very interesting study, I'm sure, for a lot of us, especially if we've never been baptized. uh, This is something that you'll want to pay close attention to because it will show that baptism has a place in our Christian life. Well, that will do it for this session. Hope that cleared up some things for you. If not, don't hesitate to email me with your questions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.